This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 7th, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with Rob Morse. He's the author of the Slow Facts blog and a co-host of the Polite Society podcast. I hope you enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. On a Skype line now, I have Robert Morse. He is the writer of slowfacts.wordpress.com and he's also the co-host of the Polite Society podcast. Um, Rob, I saw that you mentioned a new Los Angeles ordinance where guns must be locked or disabled in the owner's home. You threw in a comment, who knew, but thugs don't obey the gun laws. Uh, tell me what your opinion of this ordinance is. It's, it's political posturing. Uh, we're entering the political season in the United States Every two years, some uh, four-year cycles, and when they overlap, we see politicians pass some meaningless uh, laws so they get in the paper so that they can secure campaign contributions. And what's really sad to me is some of these laws put people at greater risk. I understand they advance a politician's career. They get him the donors he wants, but it's costing us lives. Explain how locking up your gun. I mean, there's been a number of cases where a child got hold of a gun mm -hmm. and um, yes. accidentally either killed uh, a parent or another child or themselves. Surely it just makes right. sense. If you've got a gun in your house, you keep it locked up. Well, I teach firearm safety. I'm a NRA certified instructor for basic handgun safety. I take people, young, old, and teach them how to safely handle and store a firearm. You're right. What we see is that people who, and I'm going to have to use air quotes here because mm -hmm. I'm condensing a large bit of language here, they sneak a gun into the home. Usually someone who, let's say one family member has said, don't do that, or uh, uh, maybe they're a prohibited person and it's illegal for them to have a gun. Mm -hmm. Then the gun isn't properly stored. All the family members aren't aware of where it is, what it does, and how it's being kept one of the most recent tragic examples was a guy who said, I'm no longer a gang member. He said he got a gun for self-protection. His child took it, uh, climbed up to the top of his refrigerator, got it, and shot his younger brother while playing with a gun. That's grossly irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at the other side. Sadly, about 32 children are injured with a gun per year in the United States. That's from the CDC. Mm -hmm. I think that's from 2014, 2013, 2014. Sorry, can you repeat we, that statistic? 32 children are injured with a gun every year. Yes. We have 
hundreds of individuals who defend themselves with a firearm every day in the United States. We have a culture of responsible gun ownership here. We view our police as second responders, just as you, if there were a fire in your kitchen, are a first responder. And we wouldn't tell you to don't dare turn off the stove, don't dare get a fire extinguisher and extinguish it. No, we want you to run away, let your house burn, and leave the fire to the professionals. I'm not saying that, uh, that citizens activists are all powerful. You and I know better. But you and I are always the first responders. That's why you and I learned basic first aid and CPR, because we have to keep people safe until the police, fire department, secondary officials, until they can arrive and be the secondary responders. Okay, Rob, there's there's two issues here that I want to divide out, and one of them is mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, many people believe that they have a right, and that's kind of based in philosophy. It's not necessarily based in, in, in practicalities or in politics. They believe they have a uh, an inherent right to be armed. There's a second issue whereby some people believe that having a heavily armed society makes people safer. There's some people who believe that it does not. And I'm just looking at the comment that you made on your on your blog here. You said that a Los Angeles suburb ranks as the 32nd most dangerous place to live in the United States. California has eight cities in the top 100 most violent. That suggests to me that you're thinking that in general, less restrictive gun laws make people safer. Do you really think that's true? No, no. I, uh, do you mind if I correct that perception? Go right ahead. I think it's uh, almost the opposite. You and I know how to produce a violent city. When we crush economic activity, we promote unemployment. Mm -hmm. We then see broken families. We then see rising rates of addiction. We see uh, a growing gang culture. And those people don't obey the law. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the number at the people that actually do the shooting, who mm -hmm. pulls a trigger and uh, commits a violent crime, overwhelmingly the number are their gang members in our mm -hmm. in in America's cities, and where we see them is in our failed cities. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that there's a correlation between economic failure and violent crime, and I don't think anybody could disagree with that. But if you were to control for uh, those economic disadvantages, if all other things were equal, do you think that a society that is m better armed is more likely uh, to be safer? W wait a minute. You're asking me to ignore 90% of what we see, and now we're talking about the 10%. Yeah, what, um, what does... I, I can. Yes, I exactly. Can we're trying want, to extract. We're yeah, trying to extract out the effect of guns. There are, for example, uh, some... Places that are uh, have very poor economics are very suffer from crime, but have relatively fewer guns. Th that's true. Yes, they do. And I there mean, are places look, that are quite wealthy. We watch them hack each other to death with machetes. It's tragic. I agree. Um, so, so my question is, the I'm trying to isolate the effect of guns on its own. And you're correct. I, I, there are many confounding factors. But do you do you think it is even possible to uh, to see? to isolate the effect of guns? We originally started with great intentions and we said, look, let's make guns safe. Let's teach firearm safety. And we watched the number of hunting accidents, the number of, we don't even call them accidents anymore. We call them negligent discharges. 
because we know how guns work. It's almost never a mechanical failure. It's a it's a human failure. Mm -hmm. And we watched those accidents fall dramatically. That's awesome. You know, the analogy is, look, when we when we started teaching our kids how to drive and and gave them intense instruction and I'll say also some prohibitions. Look, youngsters, we don't want you driving late at night in bad weather because you don't have years of experience yet. We saw accident rates fall. Most violent gun uh, deaths are suicides. Mm -hmm. And we saw states go, look, we want you to lock up your guns. We saw the suicide numbers shift. Um, uh, and whether old or young people used a gun for suicide shifted, but the suicide rate remained unchanged. Well, I actually can refer to a study, and I'll put a link to it on the page for this podcast, but you're correct that when, uh, for example, in Switzerland, there was a major clampdown on guns. Switzerland is probably the most armed uh, society in Europe. Right. When if not the world. I looked up the figures. United States is first. Somalia is second. Switzerland is, <laughs> is third. It, it, um, it, has, it has about half or less of the, uh, the gun ownership rate of the United States. The ownership of guns in the last decade was severely restricted. And of course, the level of suicide by gun dropped dramatically. Part of that drop was shifted to suicide by other means. Part right. of that drop was accounted for by a drop in the level of suicides. But to a lesser extent, because what we're saying is, honorable people who own a firearm, we want you to change your behavior. Mm -hmm. Will that then have changes in the criminal class and mm -hmm. their behavior? And the answer is only very weakly. Uh, the United States is going through a terrible era of drug prohibition. And if you talk to law enforcement ag uh, agencies and, and just the, the cop that's your neighbor that you, you know, see on the weekends, they put it this way, because these are the guys who are called to the scene. And they said, we don't have a particular violence problem. We don't even have a gun violence problem. We don't even have a drug problem. We have a drug prohibition problem. So I take it from that that you, you, are, you are not a prohibitionist. You're not a supporter of the war on drugs. Well, I, I hate drugs. I've seen them do terrible things to my family members. I just don't think that making our society politically corrupt is the right solution. I, I understand. But I want to tighten and focus the conversation a little bit further. Mm -hmm. The point essentially is whether... All other things being equal, a policy of restricting access to guns makes society safer. I'm going to say no and, and add this caveat. When you say restricting access to guns, I want you to put in the phrase by those prone to violence. Sure. Because well, let's let's, not... let's compare this to, to drug prohibition, because I think you've yes. made, a, made a, a valuable point. The the answer to the problems caused by drugs may not be prohibition if prohibition itself causes as many or more problems. So when you're banning something, you can't just say it's bad, so ban it. You have to say the prohibition situation will be better than the situation without prohibition. Right. Um, so you, you, you are making an astute point that uh, criminals won't always obey gun laws and the 
situation where you have an armed society you can't just move to not having arms because of course you your enforcement will be imperfect is that essentially the point you're making vastly imperfect we've looked around the world and we've seen where we even had broad civilian compliance where uh honorable people turned in their firearms mm -hmm. the thugs didn't who knew if you look to other societies where guns are either completely illegal or uh, very difficult uh, to acquire that are broadly similar to the United States. And you mentioned Nigeria and whatever. And of course, third world countries with entirely different uh, societies and economies aren't really comparable. But if you look right. to countries... I think you just described a, a, a French fried ice cube there, William. You said uh, places where we've seen a broadly accepted firearms prohibition that are like the United States. Who did well, you have I, in mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, societies in Australia, Europe, and so forth are largely the same in terms of political structure. They're democracies. They have uh, uh, roughly the same economics, uh, the same level of employment in high-level industry and so forth. They're, they're developed uh, societies with a democrat tradition, but we ha they're also vastly different in a cultural sense. One, you, you know that Australia was not, in quotes here, disarmed. Because if you want a shotgun, you could still get it. Just like sure. uh, Ireland and, and parts of Scotland, if you want a uh, shotgun for, air quotes here, sporting purposes, you can get it. Mm -hmm. a, a teenager can get a license. Mm -hmm. He has to take classes. But so um, I don't want to confuse reality with uh, headlines as reported by the sure. news. But, but, but nowhere else in the world can a civilian get hold of an, uh, uh, an assault rifle. I'm going to object immediately because I think the term assault rifle is is a made-up term. Well, can get can get a high-powered no, gun stop. that You're, is designed. No, that to, is designed I for shooting many humans. Because an assault rifle, as as classically described, isn't a high-powered gun. An assault rifle is a girl gun, really. When well, well, well. Let's let's define it this way. The the types of guns that you can get in other societies that are maybe partially liberal about having guns, the types of guns that you can acquire are far more limited. Uh, some, some, well, in some states in the United States, they're vastly, they're quite restricted, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't even need to go overseas. We can see the differences just within the many states within the U.S., yes. Okay. The, the, the three areas where, where obviously gun control could have an effect, one is Accidental shootings. I accept what you say uh, that, that the number of people you mean, that the number you mean of people, gun control or gun or firearms instruction. Uh, it, well, b both, but I'm referring specifically to gun control. It would be difficult oh. if if nobody's allowed to have a gun. It's very difficult for somebody to be killed by a gun accidentally. Um, equally, suicide. And we saw in, in as I mentioned in Switzerland that there is some but not complete displacement of uh, right. the methods of suicide uh, when uh, firearm use is restricted um, and crime but and you said that um, thugs won't give up their their uh, guns uh, but ammunition has a very short shelf life Excuse if me? ammunition uh, gets used up a gun might be very durable oh, okay but it's, it, it's got an infinite shelf life but it is consumable Yes. Yes. There we go. Um, uh, and um, for example, 
uh, one society which went from a society that was quite like the United States uh, was Ireland. A hundred years ago was a heavily armed society, had uh, very much an outlaw culture because uh, the um, British government was not right. recognized by a, a vast swathe of people. The man who a hundred years ago set up the Irish police force made the decision that the police would not be armed. And he did that because he knew that if they were armed, the people, particularly in the countryside, were quite heavily armed, and that would simply pro um, provoke essentially gun battles. The supply of guns and ammunition was essentially completely cut off, and Ireland has extremely low rate of gun ownership, almost no uh, ownership of, of the type of guns that would uh, could be possibly used in a mass shooting, and uh, almost no gun crime. And it is very significantly difficult for criminals to get hold of guns and yeah. ammunition. Now, in, in theory, it's difficult. It's difficult for them to get hold of a legal. No, and, and it is also firearm. difficult for them to get hold of an illegal firearm. William, you're telling me there are no drugs in Ireland. Oh, there most certainly are. Okay, so and there can, is there, we can and move there are thousands of tons of drugs. We can move thousands of illegal immigrants, and you're telling me you can't move one pound of steel. Oh, they can. But it is significantly difficult, and crime is suppressed by that difficulty. No, now see, there... And I, the reality, the fact, the proof of that is in the crime figures. Urban crime in places that are otherwise quite uh, deprived is very significantly lower than, for example, in the United States. I believe Ireland's rate of crime in 2014 was greater than that of the United States. So to claim that it's an interesting claim. I don't think it's borne by the facts. Let, let me move on to a, a slightly different uh, topic in that case. Well, but you, you bring up a, a fascinating point um, and the notion that we can create governmental rules that will control people's behavior is, is a, uh, a noble thought. But I want to go back that it's often a political claim not borne by the facts. The example that we started with was California. We have a state with a uh, huge influx of illegals. We see human trafficking in prostitution. We see huge drug problems. And, and the notion that we're going to, by the imposition of pro a prohibited object, a piece of plastic and steel that costs a few hundred dollars, it's available worldwide, will prohibit it, and therefore people's behavior will change. I don't see those, those effects. Okay, let, let me move on to a slightly different question in that case. Um, Wayne Lapierre, the uh, head of the NRA, has uh, almost a catchphrase that he's repeated it so many times now. He says that <laughs> the, o the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, when has been the last mass shooting that uh, was stopped by somebody who was armed and uh, a civilian? Now, you said the last one... I'm not sure that I have the last one. I have a number of them. Wayne LaPierre made that claim in the wake of, I can't remember which, mass shooting. So looking at mass shooting specifically, when, yes. when, no, when no, no, see, did and, and, an armed civilian manage successfully to intervene? Oh, well, let's see. I can give you – and, and I, I've written about this. I'm going to promote my own site with shameless self-promotion. No problem. They do exist, but they're so hard to find because – if a, a psychotic nut gets hold of a firearm 
And often, sadly, they pass the background checks that we put in the way. We don't recognize these individuals until they commit a violent act. It makes news. Mm -hmm. If the guy is stopped quickly, there's maybe one. I mean, classically, the difference is the, the nut gets to kill people until the police arrive and uh, 12 to 14 people die. If there is an armed individual there, he does. Mm -hmm. He often engages them. This is just our experience. We, we've looked at the data mm -hmm. and we literally save a dozen people. So mm -hmm. one to two people die. I, I understand what you're saying, but, um, but I'm you looking... You asked me for specific examples. Yeah, exactly. And okay. and the the reason I ask is because I'm looking at a um, a Mother Jones article. And also, <laughs> well, well the, 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 and I'm asking you if you dispute the facts, then you're welcome to do, do that. The last time that a mass shooting ended with a civilian shooting the original shooter was in the early 1980s. Okay. And that there's been literally thousands of mass shootings since then, no. none of which a civilian has managed to no. uh, intervene in by use of a gun. I do question that. We have the Mayan Theater shooting in San Antonio, Texas in 2012. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have the Claxamas Town Center Mall in Claxamas, Oregon, also in 2012. Mm -hmm. We have the AT&T store that was New York Mills, New York State. The Golden Market in Richmond, Virginia, that was 2009. The, uh, uh, well, no, this one was in Israel, not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The Trolley Square Mall in Salt Lake City was 2007. One of the most broadly publicized, and I'm surprised you've, you don't remember it, was the New Life Church in Colorado Springs. That was in 2007. The Appalachian School of Law that was in Grundy, Virginia, that was 2002. Now, you're right. If I dig, these are well documented. Okay. You, you, so you're, you're going back uh, five to ten years in most of those. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that if you count a mass shooting as something where one person shoots four or more people and either injures or kills them, then the United States has almost exactly one mass shooting per day. But so, most of those aren't what you can. A lot of those are gangs slugging it out on the corner. No, no, no. The, no, I'm counting a mass shooting no, as no, a shooting of no, four or more people by definition. one person. We're applying your definition. I, I don't think so. I think, and I'll post no, okay, the list of those the data, on the website. And they do. It's, it's, I'll, that's why I don't like that data, because they've taken a bunch of Chicago drug thugs going, doing a drive-by to push a rival gang off a corner, and they're calling that a mass shooting. It is, by that definition. I just don't think – I think we're talking about different events. Then let's do it like this. Rather than uh, boring the listeners by listing off ones, I will repost that list that you have uh, read out to me and will comment to see whether it meets that definition that, that we're both talking about. But I want to move on to just a slightly different topic in that case. Ben Carson was uh, criticized very roundly for saying that the Holocaust could have been avoided if uh, German Jews or all Germans, it wasn't clear who he was referring to, uh, had been armed in the way that people in the United States are armed. Would you agree that was a ridiculous statement? I, I would disagree that that's what he said. Then give your interpretation of that. Um, let me describe a statement with which I can agree. Sure. When we saw the Jews revolt, either in prison camps or ghettos, more of them survived. We saw... Uh, do you have a specific uh, source for that? Yes. 
Go ahead. Saw, uh, who would have been David Kopel, I believe, writing out of the Independent Institute. I'm not sure where it was published. If that was quite recently, that, I mm-hmm. mean, he published that in defense of Dr. Carson. Well, the the example that that I thought was uh, relevant uh, was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that was uh, pretty much exclusively Polish Jews right. who were relatively heavily armed, certainly as well armed as uh, the average, uh, um, you know, Midwestern town in the United States. Um, they had they had received they had some stolen guns from uh, that they had stolen from the Nazis, and they had also been mm-hmm. armed uh, by the Soviets, dropping them weapons and smuggling them weapons. They revolted against uh, the Nazi occupation. Right. Uh, they numbered about 2,000 fighters. They were fighting a rough... Sorry, they numbered about 1,000 fighters. They were fighting about 2,000 Nazi uh, occupying troops. So they were outnumbered, but they weren't massively outnumbered. The Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising succeeded in killing 17 Nazis. Pretty much every single one of their 1,000 fighters were killed. About another twelve thousand civilians were killed in the in the Warsaw Ghetto by the Nazis during the fighting. About another fifty thousand civilians I've, were I've, were, I've, were, were deported to death camps uh, in the aftermath of the uh, of the uh, of the ghetto uprising, essentially and as you're revenge. They would not have been killed had they not revolted. No, absolutely not. But okay. they were deported in the immediate aftermath of the uprising as uh, revenge. I certainly don't think the Nazis would have dealt with them any any more uh, so, generously. So they were moved up on the list for execution. Yes, essentially. Some of but, the yes, but the, the I mean the real the real contrast is essentially every single one of the fighters of the one thousand or so uh, uh, resistance fighters were killed for seventeen Nazis killed. So. It seems to me that even if you have a relatively well-armed civilian population, they just have no hope against a well-armed military because guns are a force multiplier and an unarmed military would, of course, be able to defeat unarmed civilians because they're better organized and they have military discipline. Adding guns into the situation is just a force multiplier. The Nazis already had more guns. uh, Sorry, the Nazis already had more force. And the guns just magnified that advantage. So I'm not familiar with that example. I agree mm-hmm. with you in principle. There are two, there are two things I'd like us to discuss. Mm-hmm. One was, what would you say about the death camps that were shut down after revolts? Are, is that inconsequential or irrelevant? Uh, I don't think it's inconsequential at all, but I don't think that the uh well first of all once the Nazi, the uh people were in death camps they had essentially uh lost almost all hope the number of people who survived following a revolt in a death camp is uh is insignificant well uh, certainly it's significant to them Oh, it's but significant more, to them, but in, the, the in, no, no, no. The people were the people were significant. Their numbers in the context of the millions murdered are insignificant. You're right. It's a rare event, but what to me that makes it all the more significant because the camps were then closed and, in fact, leveled because mm-hmm. they wanted to hide the fact of the revolt. On a on a personal do- note. My, but 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 my but dad. I'm dealing I'm dealing exactly with the point that uh, that uh, Ben Carson made. He said that an armed population 
has the tendency to prevent the government becoming a, a dictatorship. And if you look at the uh, the democracy index provided by um, The Economist, whereby they rank countries in order of the quality of their democracy, and I think uh, North Korea comes last, the United States, I think, comes in at number 19, every country above the United States has very, very significant restrictions on gun ownership. The countries way down at the bottom of the list, or the countries way down at the bottom of the list, are the sort of countries where you can buy an AK-47 for cheaper than you can buy a loaf of bread at the local market. I think we're confounding different things. Mm -hmm. and, and I will stand by this phrase, uh, so I'd like you to hear it with open ears. Okay. What I think firearms do in the power struggle between a democracy and a, and a fascist regime is they keep the government talking to the people. They are willing to use discussion. They're willing to respect a minority viewpoint because going to guns is so abhorrent to both sides. When we've seen populations, minority populations particularly, out, uh, disarmed, then we've seen some really horrific uh, events, and I, we've seen that right in the United States. We saw it again and again with our race oppression in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. In fact, our gun laws were imposed to disarm newly freed blacks. Well, well let, let, me, let, me, let, me give you, let me give you an example then. For example, Somalia, which is, the, I believe, the second most armed uh, country on earth after the United States. It's up there in the top three in any case. A proto-fascist state, if you could call it that. Oh, it's, it's a, a, um, a Al-Shabaab. I'm not well, even well, sure how to describe no, it. No, no, no. As, as a whole, Somalia is a failed state. But Al-Shabaab has taken over and essentially created yes. an Islamic... Uh, fascist state yes. uh, inspired I think by uh, I ISIL right. and they've had absolutely no problem in enforcing their fascist rule despite the fact that uh, pretty much every household in Somalia has an AK-47 and, and you're okay so we've established that culture matters I agree yeah. and, and in fact culture matters far more than being armed because if if you don't know freedom and liberty and with it responsibility are alien concepts. Well, if you don't grow up really in the democratic tradition of the Greeks, you have a pretty oppressive society. We agree. Okay, well, Rob Morse, co-host of the Polite Society podcast, also the author of slowfacts.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, William. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 7th, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Rob Morse's podcast and blog and loads of other references for the things we were talking about. Do you know somebody who I should be interviewing or what topics I should be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO, 
And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. It's on iTunes if you're an Apple user or Google Play Music if you're on Android. And there's also an RSS feed if you use that. You can find them all and get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming next Monday, that's April 10th, I'll have the second part of that fiery interview with the white nationalist Nathan D'Amigo. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.